All right, we're going to start a new series this morning. It's called Tents and Temples. <laughs> Apparently, you guys love the title. So, okay, it's a good start. Again, we're just we're, we're rocking it this day. This series is going to be all about the presence of God. Okay, the presence of God. And in the scriptures, we see the presence of God. It seems to shift and to move and to change forms and to be found in one place and it's found in another place. And it, it, it's a continual question that we have, where can we meet with God? And so it's, uh, it's been a fun one preparing for. My, my brain is extremely overloaded. It's been a long time since I've gone to the Old Testament that deeply. It's been a lot of fun, but we're going to be talking about the presence of God. But before we really dig into the scriptures, the context of this is crucial. Before we talk about the presence of God, before we talk about fire or smoke or lightning or thunder or tents or temples, we have to talk about Trinity. <laughs> you guys are just going to be a riot today, aren't you? Amen, the Trinity. Okay, here we go. Okay. We have to start with the Trinity. If we're going to talk about the presence of God, about God being available and found in a place. Where is God? The first answer we see in scriptures is God is in and with himself. <laughs> and again, we go, what in the world does that mean? How does Genesis 1 start out? What does it start out with? In the beginning was what? God. And he wasn't alone either. From the beginning of the scriptures of the known knowledge of who God is, we find a very interesting fact about who God is. God is relational. The first thing we learn about him is that he is one, but he is many. He, in and of his very nature, is relational. There is a need and a desire and a goodness that comes from relating to others. And we start by understanding God and his presence by having that very fundamental thing kind of sealed inside our brains. When we talk about the presence of God, you need to understand the context. The presence is always connected to re his relationship with us. Does that make sense? Oh, Lord, this is going to be a good one, I can tell. His presence is directly related to his relationship with us. And so every time that we see the word presence in the scriptures, we need to initially begin to jump ourselves back to this word relationship. When he shows up, he's showing up for one primary reason, to be related to. Now, when you think about relationship, what do you think of? Do you think of conversation, a friendship, a marriage? There is a way of relating, getting to know someone. Relationship is back and forth. It's two-way. Okay, to have a relationship, it requires you to respond in some way, shape, or form. If I go to a wall and I begin to relate to that wall, is that a relationship? Not until that wall begins to relate back to me. <laughs> yeah, talk to me. If that happens, you know, we're going to have some problems, okay? We do not have relationships with things. We have relationships with beings. Does that make sense to you? Beings. Now, you can relate to things that might not even be, say, human. You have a relationship with your dog? Do we have dog people? Do we have cat people? Durable people? Yeah, just don't raise your hand for durable people. Birds are even worse than gerbils. I'm not sure if you know how dirty birds are. They're disgusting. Someone's going to leave the church over that, right? Okay, I'm sorry about that. But you relate to that being, you know, to that, you know, to this, to this animal, because even though it's not human, it has the ability to relate back to us, right? You know, you pet the dog, and what's it do? 
its tail wags. It's a, it's a back and forth, right? You know, you throw a frisbee, it fetches it. If it doesn't, uh, you know, it's a weaker relationship. You know, with a cat, you know, not really. A cat kind of does whatever it wants to do, right? Okay, that's why we don't like cats. Cats are not relational. Stupid animals. Anyways, I'm, I'm kidding. It's a joke. Okay, you guys are awake, see? We're talking about God required. talking about cats. There we go. We found the cord this morning. Okay, so relationship is two-way. It's back and forth. And fundamentally, God is relational. The first thing we learn about God, he is relational. He desires back and forth. He desires it. And so because he has this nature that desires to interact, to know and to be known, to converse, to learn, to experience, he does something. He creates something. He creates us. He creates a place and a people, and he desires to be with his people. Does that sound familiar to the kingdom? Yeah, okay. The kingdom gospel is very fundamentally relational. God trying to reestablish relationship with us. And so what we see is that, you know, this God is relational, and every time he shows up in human history, he is showing up because he desires to be related to, to have a back and a forth, a two-way relationship with us. Now, what's really interesting about the presence of God is that both words that we see in scriptures most often, the Hebrew word, panim, okay, means face. You guys are so excited. Okay. The Greek word, prosopan, okay, and it means what? Face. The primary words for the presence of God in scripture, both Hebrew and Greek, mean one primary thing. Face. Now, there are many different words, but these are the primary ones used in all the scriptures. And that first meaning is face. I love this. When you're talking to someone and they're doing this number, how does that make you feel? You are engaged in an active relationship, aren't you? When you're talking to someone and that person's doing this, when it comes to speaking, okay, the you know, huge rule that you're not to break is you're never to turn your back on the audience. It breaks connection. When they can't see your face, the relationship, they lose their ability to relate to you, to connect to you. There's something about the human face that is so connected to our ability to connect and to relate, to understand, to be connected to someone or something. When you call your dog, and your dog is too busy at the door, you know, with some squirrel, and he's barking, his tail's going, and you're like, come here, come here, and his butt is facing you. Is that satisfying? <laughs> no. Turn around, and you look at me when I'm talking to you. When your child, when you're talking to your child, and your child is walking away from you, does that make you feel good? No, I had to spank my child the other night for that. When I talk to you, look at me. <laughs> When you talk to your wife's husband and they roll their eyes and turn their head, is that a positive connection? No. Now, what's interesting is, you know, we could take this to all different extremes um, in society, but fundamentally our faces are crucial for connecting. There's something about seeing someone looking at you that makes it possible to connect to them. 
And the fundamental picture in Scripture of the presence of God is God coming to connect. The presence of God is going to be kind of our, uh, it's not made up, but it's kind of a, the, the custom definition that we're going to use in this series. The presence of God is the nearness, the availability, the availability and the attention of God. If you're taking notes, I'll say it again. The presence of God, when you see that, think this. It's the nearness, the availability, and the attention of God. When his presence shows up in the Old Testament, it shows up, you know, in the New Testament. It is God being near, it is God being available, and it is God giving his attention to someone or something that's taking place. The nearness, the availability, and the attention of God. Whatever you have attached that word presence. What, what's funny as I studied this is, you know, it's always fun to kind of figure out what you thought presence meant. You know, and I don't mean you, I mean like myself. Whenever I was studying it, you know, I had all these, these images and ideas of what the presence of God was. And it's almost frustrating when you open the scriptures and go, oh, so that's not even really what it, what it was. That's frustrating. But the presence of God was always this fundamental sign that God is here looking, paying attention, attentive, available. God is available. And throughout the Old Testament, the, the glory cloud, if you would, the Shekinah presence of God, the, this interesting kind of a smoke cloud that would exist over the altar of God was this, was this symbol of God being with his people. In the darkest times of Israel, where every single time that this cloud, this presence, this picture of God being near, available, and full attention given to them, every time that that cloud would leave, it would, it would mark dark years for the people of God. They desired that God would be with them and be available, be able to be connected to, be known, be spoken to, be heard, be touched, be felt, be known. And... And with this, we have to understand that if this is the very nature of God, this is also the very nature of his creation. Understand that the root of fear within all of the human condition, okay, is we are afraid of isolation. You were, there are two things that you are not created for. First of all, you are not created to die. We fear death because we were not created for death. Secondly, we fear isolation. Because we were never created to be alone. We see a, a, a relational God who creates a being to relate to. And even this being's ability to relate to God seemed to not even be enough. He wanted man to have more to relate to, so he made woman. He said it's not good for man to be alone. We are so relational that we are even given not just God to commune with, to know, to be known, to relate, to speak, to interact with but we're given each other to do this. You've got to get this inside your head. You desire relationship. And if you don't desire relationship, it's because something was stolen from you. Whether it was trauma or pain or, or hurt or disappointment that happened in your, life, in your life, in your past, if you were born and raised in a safe environment, you would do nothing but want to be around people. Introvert or extrovert, it doesn't matter. You might need a little bit of time to get away, but even then, you never want to be alone. There's a sound chamber uh, that exists here in the States, I think in Nashville, 
And it is, it is the one place on the earth that has absolutely no sound waves. It's absolutely silent. And they say that no one can stand there for longer than five minutes. You begin to lose your mind. Absolute silence. In prison, the most, the most feared thing is to, is to be put into solitary confinement. To be put into a cell by yourself. First time I heard of that, I said, that's the only cell I want to be in, <laughs> you know, in prison, right? I mean, no, I mean, seriously, it's like, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, prison sounds pretty bad. I, you know, lock me up by myself, that's fine. I don't want to be with the other inmates, you know? But it is the most feared, the most dangerous. It's even something that's almost considered torture. They, they every year has to, you know, they have to have these, these debates and reviews and studies to, to decide if it's even a safe thing to continue doing. Because it, it, it harms the inmates so deeply, they come out forever changed. Having a week alone, two weeks alone, a month alone, they come out changed forever. Isolation is unnatural for us. And again, I'm trying to hit this home for you. You have to understand, when you think presence, think relationship. Every time his presence shows up, the fundamental reason of this is he is showing up to be related to. All right, let's start to jump in the scriptures. If you guys have your Bibles, we're going to go look at something here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. This is our kind of secondary passage. We're about to get to the meat after this, but we'll start with this one. One of the first things we have to understand is that we ourselves have been created to be a sort of temple, a tent of dwelling, of meeting with God. Verse 19 there in chapter 16. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Um, we understand that in the new covenant, we ourselves have been built into a form of tabernacle, a spiritually sanctified, holy place where the Spirit of God rests and is found. But there's one thing that you have to understand too. Just because we are temples of His Spirit does not mean that we are temples of His presence. And you say, what does that mean? In Ephesians 3, we see that the church has become the new temple of the Shekinah. The church, meaning we are the place where God's full manifestation shows up. That's different from a spirit. Even in the Old Testament, the spirit of God would dwell and move on men and women. But his presence, his nearness, his full availability, and his full attention... We're in the temple. And what's really, it's a beautiful picture, is that even though God is fully available through his spirit in us, we are never able to get all of God alone. He resides in the house of God, the temple, the pillar of truth, the what? The church. You can never, ever experience or know or receive the fullness of God on your own. Read your Bibles. Now we are temples, we are, we are housing units of his spirit, but his presence, his manifestation, he shows up in a way he doesn't show up anywhere else when we gather together. There's something about bringing the God in you together with the God in me that God is pleased with. He's always desired his people together. The reason that he always localized 
The reason that the God who's, who's everywhere would choose to be somewhere. If you're taking notes, there's lots of good stuff here. The reason that the God who's everywhere would choose to be found somewhere is so his people would meet somewhere. Does that make any sense? His cloud wouldn't just show up everywhere. His cloud wasn't with every family. His cloud was in one place so the families would gather around the cloud. He wasn't found in temples everywhere. He's found in one temple. So his people would come to one place. Because what? God is fundamentally what? Relational. And he created us for what? Him and also for each other. We always want to cut each other out of the picture. We always want to find a way to create it where it's just me and God, but he will not have it that way. The new temple, the new housing, the new place where the smoke of his spirit, where, where the physical manifestation of God happens is in the church when we choose to physically gather together. In the book of Acts, the most powerful things that happened, the times when God's glory would show up, not his spirit, when his glory would show up, his presence, his face, when he would show up was when they were gathered. And this is still the same today. He will not allow himself to be cut into pieces because we were created for him and we're also created for each other. Amen. Keep preaching. Goodness gracious. You guys going to make me clap for myself, right? All right. Now, you know, today we don't have time to go super deep. We have an entire series for that, but we are going to get started. If you guys have your Bible, so let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to learn some more about the presence of God. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The context here, of course, is uh, we are now on the scene with David. David has, has already slain the lion and Goliath. He's already been through the, the darkest of lows. He's already betrayed uh, Yahweh. He's already gone to the Philistines for protection. He's already been forgiven of that. The, the, he's already cost the, the blood of, of thousands of, of innocents because of his disobedience. But now he's also been forgiven and he's also been restored. And he has now just been made king, not only of Judah, but of Israel. He has now united a people that have been separated. And he is king over Israel. And... His next major act as king is to bring the ark of God back home. You understand that the tent of Moses, the tent of meeting, the place where the presence of God, the, uh, what's the word for that? The kabod of God was found, had been, the kabod, the ark had been stolen in battle. And so the tent of Moses had been moved to Shiloh. I'm giving you guys days of study for free. Okay, so anyways... For those of you who care, okay, like, you know, the actual tent of Moses had been moved to Shiloh, but it had been empty. The presence of God had been missing for a very long time. And so now David, through war, is gone, and he's recaptured the Ark of the Covenant. And he's bringing the presence, he's bringing the nearness, the availability, and the attention of God back to the people of God. And so here we are, we catch up on the story. Verse 1, I'm going to butcher some names and all the research I did. I didn't take the time to figure out how to, uh, you know, enunciate these names, so please forgive me. Here we go. Verse 1, so David brought together the chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah. This is terrible. I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Pause right there. Anytime you see the word new, it's almost going to be trouble. Okay? This is a new idea. Okay, with David, he's such a smart guy. He has a new idea. Let's put it on a cart. Note to self, okay? Um, in the book of Numbers and also Joshua, we see that God had prescribed for his ark this, this, this container of his presence to be carried on poles. So they had these long poles that would go through the sides of it. And so they'd have six men who would pick it up and they'd carry it on their shoulders, okay? So in case if one person fell, the other people would still be there to hold it up. It would always be safe if they're going down hills and things like that. Okay, it's a lot more stable than, than being put on a cart. But they had this new idea, they're going to put it on a cart. On top of that, the men who were to carry it were supposed to be priests, men who were consecrated and were focused on the presence of God. And you're about to find out what happens when they disobey God. So, uh, verse 3, so they set the ark on, on a new cart and brought it from the house of, of whatever his name is, <laughs> which is on the hill, which, which was on the hill. Um, Uzzah and Ahiel, sons of uh, Abinadab, there we go. We're guiding the new cart with the ark, the ark of God on it, and Ahab walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Okay, just kind of see this in your head, okay? They got on a cart, there's some oxen pulling, and there's two guys on the side, you know, trying to keep it stable. They're walking by, and all of a sudden, the thing starts to get unstable. He reaches out and grabs it. Bad things happen. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down. He died there besides the ark of God. Verse 8, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called uh, Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Pause right there. Now see, we see a fundamental shift here in David. We see here's a man who understands the value of the presence of God. And he has set out with 30,000 men to bring the ark home. But now his perception of the presence of God has changed. Now he decides he doesn't want to live near or in the presence of God. This is very important for us to see. And so what happens is, because he wasn't willing, instead he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now the king, now the king David was told, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Verse 13, interesting change here. The cart's gone. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull of fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Now there's a whole other story that's about to take place here. We don't have time to get into that one. But there's some things I want to talk about. Uh-oh, that was bad. Here we go. There's some things I want to talk about from the story. I want you to understand this, okay? This morning, 
the main focus for us. We are just getting our feet wet on this topic. And if the presence of God is a direct correlation to the relationship that God desires to have with us, then as we begin to talk about his presence, the fundamental question for us this morning is very simple. How, how near to the presence of God are we willing to live? How close to the presence of God are we willing to live? I love the section here where David, you know, he's setting out to, to do this, this, this foundational change in the life of himself and his people. He set out with 30,000 men to bring the ark back home to live in the presence of God. And yet he sees something and he decides, I don't want to live near or in the presence of God. In this morning, this is still a question for us because What's very interesting for many of us as Christians is that we might attend church and do all these different things, but many of us live in a way to keep our distance from God. We do just enough to keep things good. He can stay over there at Pastor Devin's house, but I don't really want all that coming into my house. My upbringing in the church was non-denominational, and, you know, the churches that we attended whenever I was younger used to get a little bit crazy. And while there were some flaws in that, one of the great things I learned was you couldn't have the presence of God without having things get messy. People just got a little weird. You know, you, you couldn't have the presence of God without people getting a little bit loud. Things getting a little bit uncomfortable. You know, and, and again, you know, there were some things in that movement as a part of, you know, that wasn't God, it was people. But the one thing I did learn, though, was when the presence of God came, he had his way. And you couldn't have it both ways. You could either choose to have church without God and do it your way, or you could choose to have it with God and suffer the consequences. We were famous for the five-minute visit. A family would walk in, they'd drop their kids off at nursery, sit down in the church, and then they'd get back up and walk right back to the nursery. And in about five minutes flat, they decide this church was not for them. And again, but the one thing I took away from that was I learned what it was like when God showed up, when, when God really showed up, when he was really available. It was almost like you could just, you know, experience, feel him, touch him in a way that was more than usual. When he would show up in a way that wasn't just the way he was when I was in, you know, when praying or reading the scriptures. Whenever, in those times in church, whenever we would gather, he would show up in an extraordinary way. And it was just, it, it, it was good and bad. I mean, to this day, when the presence of God shows up, I get nervous. I won't lie. Whew. Because he's not tame. He doesn't obey you. I hate that. <laughs> he doesn't act the way we want him to act. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't do the things we want him to do. He does what he wants to do. But we always have a choice. We always have a choice to say, I think I'm going to keep my distance from his presence. You know, and, and what's so, so interesting about the story, it wasn't like a curse came upon David or upon Israel because he chose to not be in the presence. He wasn't cursed, you know. I mean, you know, Israel wasn't captured. He didn't get sick. The people didn't suffer. It's just that they also didn't get the benefits 
of living in the presence of God. And after three months of watching Obed-Edom's house and his family prosper and multiply and get wealth and favor and blessing, he goes, I think I want to live in the presence now. And it's so interesting because, again, for us today, we all have access to the Spirit of God at all times. But we also, even as we contain the Spirit of God in us, still have a choice. Do we want to really live near the presence of God? It's okay to have Him available inside of us, but do we really want to let Him show up? Do we really want to let Him out of His cage, if you would? And so in this story, it's the fundamental thing that we have to ask ourselves. Do we want to live near or in the presence of God? Real quick, I'm going to run down some things that we learn here. If you guys are taking notes, here's the first one. The first thing that we learn here in the story is the reality of the presence of God. It's sobering to realize that the God of the universe could be near you, know you, talk to you, or even care about you. The first thing we see here is that there is a a, a heaviness that comes with understanding it is possible for this God to be near me. Because when his presence shows up, he's not just showing up to be there. He's not just showing up for us to offer sacrifices. You have to understand this. You have to understand when Jesus came to the earth, the temple still, exi- still existed when Jesus was there. Okay? The sacrifices were still being made to God when Jesus was walking the earth. But something wasn't in the temple. The Shekinah. The presence of God wasn't there because the presence of God was somewhere else in a body. And there are many people who wanted to continue to offer sacrifices, to go to church, to tithe, to get dressed on Sundays, to do the thing, but they didn't really want to open up relationship with God because relationship gets messy. Now, it's okay for me to go to a barber and get my hair done, but I'd like to keep, how you put this, the ones I used to like were the ones who didn't talk to me. Or the ones who didn't need me to talk back. The ones who would just talk to themselves the whole time they're cutting your hair. I used to love those. The ones I hated were the ones who asked questions. Just cut my hair. I don't want to talk to you. Come on, be honest. Okay, there's, there's days where you, okay, just cut my hair. When you go to the doctor, right? Hey, just make me feel better. I don't want to get to know you. I don't want to tell you my life story. You know, just make me feel better. When you go to Walmart, hey, just check me out. Just scan the stuff, I'll pay. Yep. Good day to you too. Merry Christmas. You know, I don't want to sit here and have a relationship with you. Come on, I'm just being honest. Okay, on your worst day, okay, on your good day, sure. You want to tell your life story. You know, you know, put in the checkout counter. You're the same way with God. Hey, just save me. Just take my money, you know. I'll be there on Sundays. Here, I'll serve a little bit. Just here, just stay over there. I don't need to get to know you. Because anyone who's had a real relationship knows something about relationships. They get messy. They get uncomfortable. The problem with relationship is it's give and take. The problem with marriage is you 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 have to get to know the person. If you could just be married and not have to do all the hard stuff, terrific. Get all the benefits. Without the hard work, and everyone goes, uh, amen, right? Without all the hard work, and yet this is the precise thing we try to do with God. We'll take the blessing of God. Yeah, sure, save me. Here's, here's the prayer. Here's, here's all things you ask of me, but please don't come any closer. 
please don't ask to open up that closet. When you have people over to your house, it's all great because you know what? What you can do is you can clean the living room and the bathrooms. And you throw all the junk into the other rooms and you close the doors, right? Yeah. You can't do that with your spouse, can you? They know where all the junk's hidden, okay? When guests come over, the master bedroom is locked. And this is precisely what we want to do with God. You can be a guest in my home and we can talk football and we can chit-chat and we can do all the good stuff, but don't try to come any closer because it's uncomfortable. And this is the precise thing that we see with David. All of a sudden he realized this might not be as, as easy or as comfortable as I thought it was. It was one thing to sing to him with the sheep. It was one thing to receive his strength in battle. But oh no, now I have to truly begin to allow him to have things his way. The second thing that we see in the story, the reality of choice. A tough truth is that we each get to choose how close we will let God come to us. How close are we willing to let him come? For all the things I did not like, for all the things that, you know, in my experience as a child, in churches that I just thought were just off, the one thing that I'm so grateful for was I got to experience what it was like when God made you uncomfortable. I love that. It was a very physical experience. And it was only a picture of what happens in my own personal walk as well. When I choose to let him into my finances, when I let him into my relationship with my wife, when I choose to let him in, in, into my choices on where I work, and you know, when I choose to let him into my choices on my dreams and my hobbies and my time, when I let him into those things, it gets uncomfortable. Because if I choose to open the door, if I choose to let him in, I cannot tell him what will happen next. He tells me. But if I keep the door closed, if I keep Sunday mornings tame, <laughs> that I can get what I need from him, but keep things comfortable. I can keep him on the cart. I can keep the oxen doing all the heavy lifting. But the moment I've got to pick up that stinking thing on my shoulder and start carrying the weight, that's not quite as comfortable as putting it on a cart. The next thing we learn in the story, we, we see the demands of his presence. Few things we fear more of his presence than his demand for change in us, our lives, priorities, idols, sins, and will. You would all fully embrace God if you knew he wouldn't mess with anything. If I told you right now, if you would just, you know, say a prayer or, you know, do this thing, and you would experience all the blessings of God, you would, you know, he'd bless your family and your, your physical body, you, you would be fulfilled, have purpose, have peace and joy and all things, you, you know, whatever. If I told you all these great things, and he won't even touch anything in your life, he'll leave everything the way you want it. You'd all sign up. When you had that picture of marriage, you know what? You know, this person's moving into my house. This person's coming into my life. I'm not going to change a thing. I didn't realize 
How many things are supposed to go on a bed until I got married? I thought you had a mattress, a sheet on the mattress, a blanket, and a pillow. I know what a sham was. We'll just stop there. There's a lot of things I learned after that. <laughs> wow. She's supposed to wash. Anyway, okay. Well, just stop right there. The problem about marriage is, you know, you don't get to keep things the way you want them. And if you do, you probably have a big issue in your marriage. You'll find out in every part of your marriage where you haven't been willing to budge is a problem that's something that comes up continually. If there's a place in your life where you did things a certain way, your spouse wants to change it, and you're not willing to compromise, that's probably something that comes up all the time and causes fights. If it's money, if it's the laundry, if it's your spending money, if it's, you know, whatever it is. If there's an area in your life where you're not willing to let your spouse have their say, I guarantee you it's, it's been a block for you for a long time. And yet we're the same way with God. Those of us who walk in spiritual maturity, those of us who experience and do things with God that are more than the rest of us are just people who are willing to let God meddle. Do whatever you want. Bishop Duku, who was here last week, he's one of my favorites. Because he just doesn't care. I mean, really. It's like, okay, God, sure. Whatever you want to do. You guys didn't know this about him, but, you know, he was sharing a story, and I'm sure you guys caught, you know, like one out of every ten words he said. He's my favorite, by the way. He, you know, the part of the story you don't know is that, you know, before he went into the ministry, he was royalty in Ghana. He was in line to be the, the king of kings. That's the actual title, king of kings. He was royalty. He was in line to be king. And yet, when God gripped his life and spoke to him, he told him to go to South Africa. And again, when you think of South Africa, you know, you think of blacks. What you have to understand is at that time, South Africa was being ruled by whites. And during the apartheid, what that meant for him to leave a country that, that was ruled by a tribe where he could be king of kings and to go into South Africa meant that he had to go from being a king and, and, and being royal to being a slave. He had to leave all his possessions. He had to walk. He had to walk to a literal fence and walk inside the fence knowing he could not be let out unless he had permission. And that's where he started his church. The problem with the presence of God is it's uncomfortable. The problem is if he just wouldn't change anything, if he wouldn't ask us to do anything, if he would just give us what we want and just leave us alone, everything would be tremendous. The one thing I learned about even in the services I used to attend where it was like the presence of God would show up in certain ways and manifest in a very extremely real way, even in that setting, we would obey him to do all the stuff we wanted to do. We'd have great times of singing and yelling and dancing, doing crazy stuff I won't even tell you about. But the one thing we wouldn't do is leave changed. The moment, that, the, moment the Spirit of God would start to speak about our marriages, about our futures, about our decisions, all of a sudden the Spirit got quenched. Oh, it's time to go home. But if it was fun, if it was words of knowledge, if it was people getting, you know, you know, Holy goosebumps. Man, we were in it. But the moment he wanted to change things, it's time to go home. You will find that in every denomination throughout all of human history. 
Because the fundamental question is, the way that we relate to him is very simple. When his presence shows up, he desires a relationship to be known and to, and to know us and to the back and forth and the conversations and that deep fellowship. But there's one problem with it. To relate to God means to relate to him as what? God. He would be so great if he was just a friend, if he was just a father, just someone or something that couldn't tell us what to do. The place where you're at in your life, if you are stunted, if you haven't grown spiritually in a while, it's because God told you to do something and you said no. Period. And it doesn't matter what background, if you're Baptist or Catholic or Pentecostal, if you have stopped growing spiritually because you have decided to say no, you have decided to say, I'm comfortable living this close to the presence of God. He can stay right there. The people I know who live in the presence of God are constantly embracing challenge and change and sacrifice. The reason that Jesus gave us the picture, he said, follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, is to live in the presence of God, is to continually allow God to have his way. There's not nearly as many goosebumps to go with that. But there's far more blessing that comes with that. The happiest people that I know in my life are the people who have chosen to do this. They fear nothing. They have no worries. There's nothing they can lose. There's nothing that can hurt them because everything they have is in the one who can never be moved or changed or, or killed or, or destroyed. Everything is in him. This is what it means to live in the presence of God. It's not just that God is showing up in signs and wonders. It's not just that there's a spirit moving about. It's not just that there's goosebumps. It's that you are living in a place where your heart is always saying yes. Here's the next thing you see in this, in this story. The misconception of his presence. We see that in verse 9. Many of us have a blurred picture of what our lives would be like if we truly let him have his way. It's this fear. It's this fear that if I truly let God in, he's going to meddle. He's going to tell me I can't do that thing I want to do. He's going to tell me to leave this job. He's, he's going to tell me I can't have this hobby or I have to change this. Or, you know, he's going to send me to Africa. I was always convinced God was going to send me to Africa if I obeyed him. Please just don't make me a missionary to Africa. Oh, he had something much worse. <laughs> I'm kidding, it's a joke. Come on, come on. God's like, he's not, he's not joking at all. Here's the last point. We also see the truth of his presence. We see it in verse 12, verse 11 and 12. The, the blessing upon Obed-Edom, uh, his possessions, was a faint illustration of the surpassing peace, joy, comfort, purpose, pleasure, and fulfillment his presence brings. Here's the whole point, guys. All of eternity you will be living in his presence. And not just his presence, but each other's presence. This, this life, this blip on the radar of, of, of existence is, is truly for us to come to a place to prepare to embrace the life to come. With the tragedy that we had this week with those two young lives, the one thing that comes out of it that we all need is a reminder that this life is short. And it can end at any moment. And what truly matters is what comes after this. And the goal for us is to come to a place where all we desire is to live in the presence of God. Are we willing 
to get into that place. And of course, what happens the moment we do is everything that we've been missing, everything we've been wanting, everything that we needed was there all along. But it's always the place for some reason that we just keep distance from. I'm going to ask the ushers, go ahead and bring one up the table. We're going to start 2016 with, uh, with communion this morning. We're not going to start the fast yet today. We're going to start the fast uh, next Sunday. I wanted to give everyone out traveling for the holidays a chance to get back so we can start this thing together. Um, you know, as we go into the fast, you know, it's, it's, it's not about eating or not eating. It's not about those things. The fast is about focusing ourselves on what matters most, finding a way physically to remind us spiritually of what matters. It's a way of, how you put that? You know, when it comes to God, it's always a question of our will. Are we willing to obey God? Are we willing to, to follow him? Are, are we willing to do the things he asks of us, you know? And, and you can't just change your will. You can't just make yourself want something different. What you can do is start working on your will. Start tenderizing, start fighting, start wrestling with your will. And fasting is one of the ways that we begin to wrestle with our hearts. It's one of the ways that we begin to say, you know, I don't care what my selfish self wants. I'm going to wrestle this thing into submission and choose what is best for me, even if it's not what I want in the moment. It's a way of feeding our hunger for God and starving our hunger to satisfy ourselves. I know it's a little awkward because like, we don't have music yet. I'm trying to buy time. <laughs> Come on, guys, relax. It's all good. Would you guys stand with me? All right. If you guys haven't noticed with communion, I always kind of, you know, depending on the series, you know, we get to take a different angle on communion. But that's the beauty of it. Communion is one of the most beautiful, multifaceted, you know, pictures that we get of our relationship with God. And, and so again, here, we get the chance to choose the spiritual food over the natural food. We get to take this physical thing that's a picture of something that's not physical, a picture of something that's, that can't be seen, something that can be tasted right now, of tasting something that we can't yet taste. And so this morning, as we're talking about the presence of God, the question is very simple for you. If you didn't catch anything that we talked about, which is very possible, what I want you to walk away with is this. How close are you willing to live to the presence of God? I'm not talking about goosebumps, you know. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues only. I'm not talking about the gifts. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about are you willing to live and to let God live in your house, in your heart? In your, are you willing to let God be God to you? Are you willing to let him leave this building with you? Are you willing to, to, you know, to let him follow you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? Are you willing to listen to him when he speaks? Are you willing to obey him when he does talk to you? How much of God do you really want? In the book of Romans, when we talk about salvation, the entire passage is about confessing him as Lord. It's really a question of intent. What do you really want? Not about what you say, but in the deepest part of you, how much of God do you really want? Because that's how much of God you will get. As I invite you guys up, I'll just leave you with this. You know, Jesus summarizes this, this entire thing. 
ask and it will be given. Knock and it will be opened. He is near. He is available. And His attention is already on you. He's looking. His face, His presence is looking right at you. Are you willing to engage or are you going to turn away? So I invite you all to come on up.